Good to see you all. Uh, it's a very exciting day today. We've got the new liturgy, the new service order. Uh, we did things a little bit differently, uh, mainly at the beginning. Um, but I love that we were able to get more people uh, to be able to worship together and praise together. Praise is always awesome when there's more people. Um, so if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay. Uh, welcome to our church. Uh, I know it's not easy coming to a new church, stepping into a room uh, of strangers, but you are welcome here. You are loved here. It's awesome to have you here. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Um, just a few things uh, following on from the announcements. Um, so we've got our new FLM room, rooms, plural, uh, set up. Thank you for the volunteers that came out yesterday. Uh, we had so many people show up. It was awesome. We set up the furniture together. Uh, I usually get very frustrated um, when I set up IKEA furniture, uh, but everyone that showed up must have been much more godlier than me because everyone seemed to be doing it with a smile on their faces. So thank you again for showing up. Um, and, you know, after the service, if you just want to have a wander and have a look, um, you know, you can have the grand tour. It, it looks amazing. Uh, so this is for the FLM people. So if at any point you just want a place to chill, have a cup of coffee and have a chat with people, um, I'm also going to be bringing all my books from home and adding it onto the bookshelves. Um, these are donations. So if you actually want to take some of the books and just keep it, you're more than welcome to. Um, just take what you need, though. Uh, don't take the whole thing. Um, all right. And um, as we mentioned earlier, um, our brother Aiden is going to Vanuatu on the 9th of June for nine days. So please pray for him. Um, it's the mission field. This is, this is where, this is like the front line of God's kingdom being advanced. So please keep Aiden and the mission team in your prayers uh, as he heads out on the 9th. So uh, let's jump into God's word today. And the passage comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. It's a bit of a longer, longer passage. Uh, so Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. The word of God reads, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, according to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You, you leave the commandment of God and hold to, to the tradition of man. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you hold uh, sorry, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, 
and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, uh, sorry, for, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we, we thank you for the gospel of Mark and we thank you for your word. Uh, today in particular, we'll be examining a passage of conflict uh, where men from Jerusalem come to see Jesus, to confront him, to debate with him, to argue with him, and ultimately to try and destroy his reputation. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would approach this passage with humble hearts, uh, that we wouldn't see the Pharisees as a people who approach you in a way that we never would. Uh, but Lord, in so many ways, if we approach this with a humble heart, uh, we will recognize that so often the, the, the Pharisees represent the way we approach life so often. Despite all the truth that we learn through your word, so often we, we kind of fall back into this Pharisaical mindset in the way we relate to you. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray for humble hearts and we pray to be able to hear your words of healing. Even though it is a confrontational passage, this passage nonetheless gives us healing and answers in our walk with you, in the, the hindrances and the barriers we face on our journey with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in today's passage, uh, what we'll see is a standoff between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Uh, we saw in the last fortnight that Jesus... Um, he declared his divinity, the ego iomi threefold statement that he made to his apostles in the boat. He declares that he is God. And then he proved his divinity by walking on water and stopping the storm the moment he gets into the boat. It was a, it was a demonstration of his authority as God over creation. And then last week we saw that as he landed in Gennesaret, uh, he demonstrates as God his divine heart of love and compassion to the sick. Because if you remember, the sick from the entire town were laying in the marketplaces on their beds by their friends. Today, however, we see a very different side to the Christ. Uh, kind of like a Mexican standoff. Uh, I used to tell my youth, this is almost like a rap battle that's going, going on here. Because the Jewish leaders come to see Jesus and really just destroy him verbally like to, to, to just really call him out call out his mistakes and just sh destroy him in the presence of the entire town and the opening verse tells us that this group that sought out jesus uh, it was a group that was combined of pharisees and scribes 
And the best way to describe these people are the Pharisees were, were kind of like a sect of Judaism, and they believed uh, that through obedience and by the keeping of the law, you could achieve a restored relationship with God. Um, they were very fanatical about this, and so fanatical that they often went actually beyond the law, beyond what the word dictated, and they created what was called the oral tradition. And that's important to remember in today's passage, the oral tradition. Um, now, what is that? The oral tradition, uh, it's in the name. It's like a tradition created by word of mouth. And it was a tradition where it went beyond the law, beyond what God commanded, uh, commanded in Scripture, and it created extra laws on top of what God had already created. And they compounded rule and like extra rules and you know systems of rules on top of God's original command. And they just compounded it from generation to generation as tradition started to grow. More and more rules beyond what God had actually created were established. And you know it, it did get to a point where it became a bit ridiculous. I mentioned in previous weeks that they'd actually created because the Sabbath you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest as God commanded. It was a day designed for men. But they created rules like you couldn't walk more than a particular distance before it was you know, deemed to be work. Um, they even created rules where you, know, you couldn't spit on the ground. Because spitting on the ground, you, know, you might be wondering, well, how is that work? Well, they were so concerned about breaking the Sabbath law about working that they said, you know what, if you spit on the ground and you step in your spit, like the spit lands in the dirt, in the soil, and you step on it, don't do that, because that could be work as well. Because that could be technically cultivating soil. You know, you're, you're adding nutrients to the soil, you step on it, you're cultivating the soil, that could be farming. Like, we laugh about it, but this was how serious they took it. And, you know, it was with the best of intentions, because they wanted to guard the, the laws of God. But it got to a point where it was just so ridiculous um, but they were obsessed with this. This was the Pharisees. They were serious about their, uh, their allegiance and their commitment to the law of God. So that was the Pharisees. The scribes, on the other hand, you could kind of think of them as like more like the academic scholars. These were guys that just had their head in the books all day. They were experts, like kind of like biblical lawyers. Uh, they were experts in the law. And so this group of Pharisees and this group of scribes, you could kind of think of it as like, you know, if we were to look at it in Christian standards, it's like the Bible college professors and the pastors joining together to form this ultimate dream team. And, you know, they were a formidable opposition, uh, especially when it came to debating and living out God's word. Um, and what's more, the passage tells us that they were from Jerusalem. So you, Jerusalem to the Jews was like the spiritual capital of the world. So if this was a debating team, think of it like the Harvard of debating teams. These guys were just spiritual, or not spiritual, intellectual giants. Um, and they head off on this journey from Jerusalem to Capernaum, which is where Jesus was. And I Google Maps it again. Uh, oh, chucked chuck in the two cities. If you were to travel by foot from Jerusalem to Capernaum, it takes 34 hours if you don't stop along the way. So if you walk nonstop, the distance is 34 hours. These guys were on a mission to call out Jesus. And the reason for embarking on this trip, according to verse 2, was that they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
this whole 34-hour journey. The whole thing was planned because they heard and saw that Jesus didn't wash his hands when he ate. It's a bit gross. Um, but he doesn't come out like very well in the English translation, but the Greek tells us specifically that the reason was because that they heard or saw that Jesus didn't wash his hands and his disciples didn't wash their hands when they ate of the bread. And when we talk about the bread, uh, we can link it to what happened in the preceding weeks when we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000. So because the Greek specifically refers to the bread, not you know just eating in general, but the bread is actually a reference to that miracle that Jesus performed in the wilderness. And, you know, in the wilderness, there's no running water, so where are you going to wash your hands? Um, so that's why they set out, because Jesus, in the wilderness, they heard that, you know, he fed the people. None of them washed their hands. Uh, but what's the problem? Yeah, it's a bit gross. Um, you know, ideally, you want to wash your hands before you eat with your hands. But does it warrant creating a national debating team of the most elite lawyers, Bible college professors, and pastors throughout the land to send to Jesus? Like, it might be gross, but why was it such a big deal to them? Uh, Mark tells us why in verses 3 to 4. Because those verses read, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Um, Mark says in these verses that the reason for the elite debating team was because the Pharisees and the Jews held to the traditions of their elders. This oral tradition that I mentioned earlier, uh, where they would take something that was given in the law, the word of God, and as an act of piety, they would add extra rules and extra teachings on top of it. And as it passed down from generation to generation, it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the whole intention was so that they would put extra measures in place so that the original law would never get broken. Sounds good in theory. The intention sounds awesome. But it got to a point, like I mentioned earlier, that it started to deviate away from God's original intention of giving this command to begin with. And it got to a point where they created so many rules that they just missed the original point. The whole point of these commands, like the whole point of the Sabbath was for the benefit of man so that we can rest. But they made it a burden, like a yoke to weigh down uh, and cramp the way people lived. For them, this washing of hands wasn't so much about hygiene, it was for them about spiritual purity. Um, and this washing of hands, you know, God gives this command first in Exodus 30. Um, and that was where the old tradition, they took that command and they just started adding things on top of it. But here's the thing. If you read through Exodus 30 and you read the context of the original command, uh, you'll find that this mandate, this command that God gives in Exodus 30 wasn't actually for everyone. The command originally was only for the priesthood of God's people. The priest, Aaron, and the priesthood, when they'd engage in their priestly work, the command was that they, before they began any kind of work, they had to wash their hands and their feet. But the Jewish leaders 
through oral tradition. They made it a binding practice. This act of washing your hands and feet, they made it a legalistic binding law on all of God's people. That's why today's passage doesn't say that the Pharisees were holding to the word of God. But Mark is very intentional when he says that they were holding to the traditions of the elders. And for the Pharisees, this, you know, like we, we, we can criticize them, but you've got to cut them a bit of slack. Because this was all they learnt growing up. Like from the moment they're born and they go through school, they're taught from a young age, this is what you have to do to be a follower of God. All they learnt, their Bible studies, when they learnt from their rabbis, they were taught ceremonial, ritual, washing of hands and feet. This, this is a must. This is a non-negotiable. And so for them, having, you know, being raised, being taught this all their life, it bothers them when they hear of the rumors that Jesus and his disciples are eating without washing their hands and their feet. And already, you know, if you looked earlier in Mark, you saw that they were really on a mission to destroy him. And so when they hear this rumor, they think, aha, we've got him. We've got our gotcha moment. We're going to confront him and we're going to destroy his reputation and his integrity and prove that he's not the Messiah. And so they head off to confront him and they find him. And they ask him in verse 5, it says, And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They find him. No hello, no introductions, no lovely to meet you, my name is so-and-so. They don't shake his hand. I guess he wouldn't want to shake hands with someone that doesn't wash their hands. But, <laughs> but the first thing they say to him is they throw an accusation at him. And almost like, I don't know if you watch a current... Is Today Tonight still a show that's on TV? I don't know. A Current Affairs. A Today Tonight. There used to be a show called Today Tonight. I don't know if it's still on. But it was like, you know, that, that, that gotcha journalism. Like, they're not really there to report the facts, but they, 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 they go up to him and like, why are you doing this? And they're almost expecting Jesus to cover his face and run off going, no comment, no comment, and like kind of running away from the reporters. That's what they're expecting. But he doesn't respond like that. Instead... Jesus responds, in my opinion, with one of the most verbal, well, most savage verbal beatdowns in the entire New Testament. Verses 6 to 8, Jesus says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they're wasting their time. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Uh, now, again, uh, I use the ESV translation. However, this is one of the rare instances. I don't like the way the ESV translation has worded this. I think hypocrite, uh, it's a bit of a weak word to describe the original Greek. The Greek word hupikriton, uh, it literally means acting. Like you're putting on a performance. You know, kind of like how, you know, when you look at Shakespeare and theatre, you see those, those two masks side by side. That's what it is. So to call someone hypocrite, a hypocrite, is really to say someone, you're not just a two-faced scumbag. You're not just a hypocrite, a liar. But by calling someone a hypocrite, you're almost performing, uh, sorry, applauding their performance. You're like, oh, that's an Oscar-winning performance. Academy Award to this guy. 
for the show that he's putting on. So Jesus calls them a hypocrite, actors. You're putting on a show for everyone. And not only that, Jesus says, Isaiah the prophet, that's the, that's the prophet that he's quoting here when he says, you know, in vain do they worship me. He, he says, Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years ago, guess what? I'm quoting this, this prophecy to you from hundreds of years ago. When God spoke these words through Isaiah hundreds of years ago, he was looking hundreds of years into the future and he was thinking of you when these words were prophesied. When he used this term, like this, when he described the hypocrisy of what future generations are going to do, he was talking about you. Jesus is telling them, when you read through the Old Testament, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They put on a good show, but they're not my people. This was you. You talk a big game. And you act like as if you're like this with God, like you got all the answers. But you and I both know this is a performance. This is lip service. You and I know that you have no heart for God. And this oral tradition that you cling to, as you put on this performance, you put a lot of work into your oral tradition. But guess what? You're wasting your time. It's all in vain because you actually ignore what God commanded originally. You've so far forgotten the original intention of God that you now value the oral tradition more than the original words of God. Now, uh, I did debating and public speaking for five years in high school, and anyone that's done debating or public speaking, or even if you work in marketing, um, you know that it's one thing to throw an accusation at someone. You know it's one thing to make a statement. Um, but in order for that statement to have any legitimacy, you have to back it up with what's called a proof point, evidence. And that's what Jesus gives in verses 9 to 13. He doesn't just call them hypocrites. He doesn't just refer to Isaiah's prophecy and say, this is you. But he gives evidence. Verses 9 to 13, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you, have, you would have gained from me is Corbin, which is like kind of like you're, you're committing these assets to God. That is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So in the New Testament, uh, if you read through the New Testament, uh, there is, you know, passages that, you know, someone comes up to Jesus and says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And, you know, or rather, yeah, the greatest commandment, rather, is revealed as what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what comes after that? To love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments, if you think about it, actually summarize the Ten Commandments as a whole. Because... To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are to do with God. Don't make an engraven image. Don't worship any other gods. The last six commandments are to do about your relationship with people. Honor your mother and father. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't covet. All about relationships with people. Out of the final six to do with people, the very first commandment is the fifth commandment that Jesus quotes here. Honor your father and your mother. 
And culturally, the idea of, you know, the, the way you would obey this command wasn't just by, you know, showing respect to your parents. It wasn't just like obeying, okay, mom told me to get her a glass of water, I'm just going to honor her by getting her a glass of water. That wasn't the limitations of it. Culturally, the idea of honoring your father and your mother was that even in their old age, you would use your money, your assets, to make sure they were taken care of. But here's the thing. The oral tradition that had built upon this rule and other rules, they'd created a loophole so that you could avoid obeying the fifth commandment. And that loophole was that anything that you promised to God would usurp any other command in Scripture. And so for people, the Jewish leaders, they'd created this loophole where, you know, you've got to take care of your parents, but if you say, you know what, I want to commit all my money to God, then you don't have to use it on your parents anymore. It was like a loophole that was sanctioned by the religious leaders to avoid the fifth commandment. And Jesus, in these verses, is calling out the hypocrisy of this and is giving this example as the proof point for the statement he made earlier when he called them a hypocrite. And if that's not enough, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus takes it a step further. It says, and he called the people, like everyone that was there, he called them to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I told you this is like a rap battle. He's destroying them. These guys are choking. They, they don't know what to say. Jesus is verbally destroying. They came out to destroy him. He's verbally destroying them in public. And not only that, he's calling every, everyone, come here. Watch, watch what's taking place here. Look at this beatdown. And he calls out their hypocrisy again. He says, you're so obsessed with man-made rules, so obsessed with following artificial tradition that you're unfit for worship. Because you think that what goes into a body is what corrupts the body. No, 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 no. The corruption of the heart is what corrupts the body, not the other way around. And, you know, like I say each week, it's very easy to be critical of people that we read about in the New Testament. <coughs> very easy to be critical of the apostles, even critical of the Pharisees. Very easy to be crit critical of them just because of what Jesus says about them. And as savage as Jesus is in ripping apart this oral tradition that the Pharisees clung to, there is a part of me that does sympathize with them. Because like I mentioned earlier, um, these people grew up learning from the rabbis. They would have learned about the history of their nation Israel. They would have learned about throughout their history, even if you read through the Old Testament, you find just this never-ending downward spiral where Israel continues to disobey God's commands, continues to sin, continues to fall into idolatry and they break off their relationship with God. And so for the Pharisees, their original intention, they had, their intentions were good initially. The original intention of piling on these extra rules, this oral tradition, was so that they would avoid making the same mistake that their ancestors did. 
it was an endeavor to ensure that their harmony with God would never be broken through disobedience. Because they were taught, from the moment they were born, they were taught, you need to obey the words of God. You need to obey the commandments of God. Don't make the mistake that your grandparents, your great-grandparents and your ancestors made. Make sure you never forget the commandments of God. Don't even come close to breaking it. Don't even let that thought cross your mind. And for those in CG groups, uh, I visited a few groups. Uh, you, you're going through Ephesians. A lot of you guys have covered uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through to chapter 3. Um, you would have noticed that even within the church, there was a racial prejudice or a stigma between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And the reason for that stigma and that prejudice was because of what was drilled into the Jews growing up. You know, they knew now that salvation was by grace through faith, that it's 100% not what, I've, what I do, but what Jesus does. They knew that. They knew that, you know, Gentiles, um, you know, they receive the same Jesus, the same salvation. They repent the same way that we do. But because they were, it was just hammered into them from the moment that they were born, that we are the chosen people. We have the law. Because it was hammered into them, it just, they, they kept falling into this default cycle of classifying anyone else that wasn't from Israel as second-class believers. Why? Because of tradition. Tradition's a powerful thing. And so even for the disciples, who if you remember were Jews themselves, the disciples in verse 17, they seem to have trouble changing their mentality because verse 17 says, and he had entered the house and left the people. When this happened, his disciples asked him about the parable. They asked him, can you explain to us this parable? What's so strange about that question? It's a strange question because what Jesus taught just then wasn't a parable. It wasn't a metaphor. When he talks about, you know, what goes in doesn't defile you, it's it's your heart. When he called them hypocrites, he wasn't speaking in a poetic, metaphorical sense. He was being literal. But for the disciples, you know, because this was all they learned growing up, uh, for the apostles rather, and Jews in general, they would have heard this and thought, you know, surely Jesus doesn't literally mean what he's saying. Surely he meant, like this, was, this has like some kind of symbolic meaning. But Jesus doubles down in verses 18 to 23. Because it reads, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his stomach, but his heart, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus, you know, they, he's, he's exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's reputationally really ruined them in front of the people of Capernaum. And the apostles come to Jesus and say, 
Can you explain to us the inner significance of this metaphorical message that you've just shared? And Jesus, in a nice way, is saying to them, are you stupid? Seriously, are you, are you dumb? Like, you think that what goes into a person from the outside is what corrupts him? No, no, no. The reason people are corrupt, the reason people sin, is because what's within is already corrupt to begin with. You think that the simple inclinations of humanity is because people don't wash their hands enough? You think that's why people sin and murder? Because they didn't wash their hands and their feet? Are you stupid? Are you crazy? What makes a man impure? What causes a man to sin is because his heart, by default, is already corrupt. And the passage ends on this note of tension. This is where I struggle every week in my sermon prep. So what? Does that mean that we don't have to worry? My wife will tell you, you have to wash your hands and feet. Like my wife's a hygiene freak. Um, but that's not what this passage is about. Uh, and I, I kind of mulled over this, wrote, deleted, rewrote, and I just landed on one point today. Because the whole point of this is that God calls us to authentic, heartfelt worship. That's what this is about. That's why he called out the, 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 the Pharisees. Because it wasn't genuine, heartfelt worship. And Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. He calls out their man-made oral tradition. He calls out the fact that they allowed this oral tradition to usurp the original commands of God. And Jesus makes it clear that what matters most isn't that you wash your hands and your feet. It's not about what you do with your bodies. It's about your heart. God desires a heart of worship. You can put on the most... We, we did a new liturgy. I love it so far. I don't know how other people feel about it. But you can do a new liturgy. You can get everything in sync. But that's not what's pleasing to God. What's pleasing to God is the condition of your heart when you come to worship Him. But that's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Because just like the Pharisees, we can go through seasons where you can show up for worship. You can show, you know, I say, come to church at 1.30, come on time, which I, I still reiterate. But you can come to, uh, you know, at 1.20. You can prayerfully, you know, you, you can pray, you can show up for worship, you can clap your hands, you can put your arms in the air, you can show up to all the prayer meetings, you can serve in all the opportunities, the departments available. You can do all this and still not have a heart of worship. And in today's passage, Jesus doesn't mince words or pull punches when he calls out the Pharisees for not having a heart of worship. He unloads on them. He's very, very savage. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus recites this prophecy from God, which comes from Isaiah 29, 13. He quotes this verse and he says to the Pharisees, this prophecy from hundreds of years ago, it was recorded hundreds of years throughout the scriptures and it was recorded because it was talking about you. Can you imagine that? God wrote a verse in scripture, a verse of condemnation about you. 
And I think any person that reads this passage with the humble heart has to ask that question, well, what about me? What about my heart of worship? Because there are times when my heart, you know, there's times when I'm, things are going good, where it's 100% focused on God. There's times where everything is going right. But maybe there's times where we can identify with the Pharisees, where we go through the routine, the pattern of worship, but there's no real heart stirring for God. What about those seasons? Because everyone goes through periods where it all goes well. You know, you wake up in the morning, you pray, you do your devotional. It's not a burden to do your devotional. Your heart's just filled with joy and celebration. You go to work, something bad happens at work, but you praise God for it. You walk home thanking God, thank you, despite everything terrible that happened at work, that you gave me a job, you gave me a means to support my family. Thank you. And then you go home, you, you read over that devotional again. That's how committed, that's how, that's how well things are going. You go over that devotional again. You message your friends, can I pray for you? Is there anything I could be praying for you about? You pray for your friends and you go to bed thinking, yes, it's going well. And then you wake up the next day. You missed your alarm. You can't find, I couldn't find my car keys today. You can't find your car keys. You're running late for work. Your heart's just filled with frustration. That joy that you felt just eight hours prior when you went to sleep, that's gone. You're a complete mess. And then the next day, it just feels like a routine of worship rather than a heart of worship. And then you read a passage like this, as Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh. If you approach this with a humble heart, then you kind of feel this condemnation against the Pharisees really feels like a condemnation against me. Which it is. But if it's a condemnation against me, where do I go from here? Because Jesus is, is ruthless in beating down the Pharisees here. Where do I go from here? Well, the good news is that if you read the whole chapter of Isaiah 29, you'll find that verse 13, which is a verse of condemnation, is a part of a wider prophecy. And that prophecy is a prophecy of hope. Because the very next verse in that prophecy, in verse 14, God says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the chapter itself concludes in verse 34, uh, 24, rather, with God promising that for everyone that goes astray, all of them are going to come back to me. And the way this happens is that we repent and we ask him to. Now, I know this sounds weird because it's so backwards to anything we're accustomed to that we would ask him to do it. Because if anything occurs in our life, when we make a mess of things in our life, our reaction is what? I screwed up, so I need to make it right. I ruined this, so I need to make up for it. I hurt this person's feelings, so I have to make sure they receive healing. I destroyed this, so I need to pay for it. 
But this is what makes Jesus and the blessings of the gospel so radical and so transformational. Because if you read through the Old Testament, through the lenses of the gospel, you realize that the restoration and blessing that God has always bestowed upon his people, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old. It's always been him. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26, you probably know this. Pay personal attention to the personal pronoun that's used, that's linked with the actions that's taking place. I, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who's doing the working here? It's God. And we know that all of this, this was a prophecy from the Old Testament as well. This was made possible through the person and work of Christ. Because this promise of the sending of the Spirit, the new heart, when does it occur? It occurs when Christ comes. Because after his ascension, he promises to send who? The Holy Spirit. It's God that does it. And just to show that this isn't a one-off, if we go as early as Genesis 12, we see another verse where God speaks to Abraham and it's a prophecy of a day that's going to come when everyone in the world is going to be blessed through the line of Abraham. Genesis 12, 3 says, I, again, personal prayer, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, so through the line of Abraham, all families on earth will be blessed. It's a promise from God. And it's a promise that God promises he will execute himself. That all families on earth will be blessed. When in human history do we see all families on earth being blessed? You know, the Jews, some of them think it was King David. You can't say that all families on earth will be blessed because David had so many enemies. You can't say that they were blessed through David. David killed a lot of them. Same with Solomon. When in human history do we see all families, this blessing being extended to all people? We see it through Christ. Where through Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter how old or young you are, what kind of walk of life you come from, if you repent and place your, your faith in Christ, God promises to execute his promises. And so going back to what I mentioned earlier, what do we do when we come to a place where our heart is apathetic to the gospel? Where we're simply going through the routines and the motions, our heart isn't in it. Where our lips, as Isaiah says, where our lips honor him, but our hearts are far from him. What do we do? And this is going to be a cliche, it sounds so cliche, but the answer is to pray. To pray. And when I say pray, I'm not just saying, dear God, forgive me of my sins in Jesus' name, amen. I'm talking about being honest with him. If you don't feel like praying, say to God, God, I am coming to you with a heart that doesn't feel like praying. Even if you come to church on Sunday to worship and your heart's not in it, pray to God and say, I'm going to sing this, but I need you to know my heart's not in it right now. But what else do you pray for? You acknowledge where you are, but pray for God to execute his blessings and his promises that he's been doing since Genesis. 
So many promises that we have the, 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 the privilege of tapping into because of Christ. And say, you promised this. My heart's not here right now, but you promised you can give me a new heart. I need this now more than ever. Even this prayer that I'm praying, my heart is not in it. The condition of my heart is not right. But according to your word, I can't fix this. The moment I think I can fix this, the moment I try to embark on an endeavor to fix where my heart is now, according to your word, I've already failed. Your promises dictate that you would fix this. And all I have to do is call upon your name and you will fix this. Only God can change the heart. So what a foolish thing it would be to go through life, walking, trying to walk with Jesus without a heart of worship, thinking that the solution is anywhere other than Christ. And so if that is you, I do encourage you to just reflect on this passage. See what's taking place here. Look, reread over Isaiah 29. Read the whole prophecy. It's an amazing prophecy. It starts out quite grim, ends on an amazing note, a promise from God that he will bring his people back to him. So we're going to enter into a time of prayer now. Uh, I don't know where you are at spiritually. Uh, I'm not telepathic. If you are going through a good season, then praise God. Praise God for the heart that is planted in you. But if you are going through a season of apathy, then take this moment and ask God. Say to him, you, you gave these promises and you say that if I pray this, you will execute these promises. If I try any other way, I fail before I even begin. And so I'm going to trust in this. I'm going to trust that if I pray this, you will execute this. So if this is you in this moment, lift your stained, hypocritical, sin-corrupted heart up to God that is not a heart of worship and ask him in this moment and say to him, I can't do this but you promise that you will. And ask him for a new heart of flesh. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, just like the oral traditions of the Pharisees, we've grown up having it hammered into us that if we do something wrong, it's on us to make it right. If we've made a mistake, then we have to make it right. If we've caused a loss, then we have to pay the compensation. But Lord, we pray that this would not be the means that would define the way we approach the gospel and the way we approach you relationally. Because you have promised that you would execute restoration. You've promised that the means of restoration has already been accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that the only thing that is on us is to repent of our sins and trust in you by faith. To trust in the abundant promises and blessings of the gospel. And that if we ask you to execute what you have promised, that the only thing that's left for us is just to wait in anticipation. Because you've guaranteed it. And so Lord, I pray for any of us. We're, we're not immune None of us, not even the pastoral staff, are immune to sometimes falling into this spiral of just going through the motions. And so, Lord, all of us in this room come to you asking that the Spirit of God would constantly remind us that the way to restoration, the one that executes restoration, is always you. May the Spirit of God Remind us of this the moment it slips out of our minds and our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.